Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max. And listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. From WBEZ Chicago, I'm Greta Johnson, and this is the Nerdette Book Club. It's just like a regular book club, except no one has to know if you totally didn't get the book. Our selection this month is Kazuo Ishiguro's Clara and the Sun. It's a very strange and compelling book about Clara, who's an artificial friend or, you know, very sophisticated robot. That's all I'm going to say for now, because here is your spoiler warning. If you haven't read this book and you don't want to hear spoilers, this is not the episode for you. If you're cool with spoilers or if you've read the book, come on down. We are very happy to have you. I'm super excited to introduce you to this month's guests. First up, we have critic Anita Felicelli. She's the author of a short story collection, Love Songs for a Lost Continent, and the novel Chimerica. She wrote about Clara and the Sun for the Los Angeles Review of Books. Anita, welcome. Hey, thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. We also have with us Veronica Roth, the novelist who wrote most recently The Chosen Ones. She also wrote the dystopian sci-fi Divergent trilogy, which was adapted into movies. Veronica, hey. Hi. Happy to be here. So this is Ishiguro's eighth novel. He has won the Booker Prize. He's won the Nobel Prize for Literature. He is a sir. Uh, You know, he's obviously like a very prestigious author. I'm curious if either of you has read his other books. Anita, have you? Yes, I actually, for my Los Angeles Review of Books (laughs) review, I read um, the ones that I hadn't read yet. Oh, wow. You read all of them. That's great. Um, Veronica, what about you? Have you read his other stuff? Yeah, I'm not quite as accomplished as Anita. I've read uh, Never Let Me Go, I think, is the only Mm -hmm. one that I've read. So this is my second issue girl. So we are also going to be hearing from listeners throughout this episode. And I think we should just dive in and listen to a voicemail because it speaks to Never Let Me Go, actually. Here is Sarah. Hi, Nerdette. This is Sarah calling about Clara and the Sun. The first thing that I noticed with this right off the bat was how much it reminded me of Never Let Me Go in that you've got this protagonist whose sole purpose in life is to benefit others. And in both cases, they're programmed, trained, raised, brainwashed to believe that and think that it is a a virtuous calling. And the thing that was really interesting to me about Clara is that she never stops believing that even at the end when she's sitting in a junkyard looking back on her existence she has no regrets i don't know if that's heartwarming or just super depressing <laughs> or maybe kind of both i thought that was a really interesting one i actually haven't read any other ishiguro so i'm not sure exactly what she's referring to except that i completely relate to what she's talking to in terms of clara because i do think that character like it almost made me uncomfortable at times how sort of like consent was just never a question. You know what I mean? Yeah, I think there was a creepiness to, mm-hmm. to Clara. Clara, um, it is a little odd how she doesn't respond to things as a human would, and yet there's some some qualities about her that are very 
very, very human. And ultimately, you know, with the end, with, with the junkyard, Ishiguro, I think, is trying to make a point about about humans and humanity. And that and the point is very similar to Never Let Me Go. But I think ultimately each book is its own exploration. I actually think the book is very similar to Remains of the Day, hmm. uh, all of them about uh, service, right? Like the uh, a, a protagonist that uh, is there solely to serve others and has to repress their feelings. Um, or has repressed, you know, is repressed by nature, uh, as the butler is in uh, Remains of the Day. Hmm. What, what did you think, Veronica? Did, did those parallels strike you as well? Yeah, I that was one of the main things I observed when I started reading is that I was, again, like in Never Let Me Go. I don't want to spoil it for you, Greta. Um, but, uh, <laughs> That's true. We didn't do a Never Let Me Go spoiler. Yeah, right. so I'll, I'll keep it, you know, I'll keep it from spoiling it. But this perspective felt particularly limited in the same way that Never Let Me Go did. Um, But I don't know. One thing that interests me about reading more than one work from one particular author is that I think each author has things that they're always writing about. No matter Mm -hmm. what story they write, Mm -hmm. they can't help it. Like it's the same, the same stuff is like bothering them. They're like circling around the same conversations. Yeah, I love that. Yeah, and this definitely felt like that to me. It has very different things to add um, to the kind of conversation that Ishiguro is having with himself, uh, I think, than Never Let Me Go, but it did, it was preoccupied by some of the same questions for sure. I think to your point about perspective, like that's a huge part of this book, and I want to dive into that. But first, I think we should just set things up a little bit for people who haven't read it. So the book opens with Clara. As I mentioned, she's an artificial friend. She's kind of designed to be, you know, a person a kid would hang out with. She's a super sophisticated solar powered robot, and she's in a store waiting to be chosen by a child. And sometimes she gets to stand at the front window and watch everything that's going on. And one unique thing about her compared to many of the other robots in the store, uh, the other artificial friends, is that she's super perceptive. And I kind of loved this section. It's pretty much just the first 45 pages that she's at the store. But you can see her learning so much about human nature and trying to figure things out in a way that I just thought was was really lovely. I'm curious what stood out to y'all in that beginning section well I was just trying to figure out it was like re-experiencing the world um, for the (laughs) first time I I used to have a or I had a writing professor in college who would talk about um, sort of defamiliarizing objects um, for the reader when you're writing to make someone like kind of re-experience like the very specific object or or scene or whatever that you're writing about um, as if they've never seen one before, um, instead of relying on familiarity to establish a world. Mm-hmm. It was really interesting and occasionally confusing because the way Clara describes her vision is as like a series of boxes that are sort yes. of slowly like integrating. Um, I, I really loved it. This is what got me sucked into the book. I really love occupying kind of like an alien or, I guess, robot consciousness um, that, uh, I don't know, just sees the world in a different way than, than I'm able to. Mm-hmm. Um, I thought that was really well done. Yeah, I love that. What did you think, Anita, about the that beginning section? I loved it. I was hooked right away. Mm-hmm. Um, I mm-hmm. think I think that's exactly right. The the defamiliarization where you're forced to almost think through the process of how you see the world versus how the robot sees the world, and sort of the the things that you think of as logical for the robot is it's a more of a learning. Ex- everything is a learning experience, you know, and trying to figure out humans and how best to you know, serve their ends. And I thought, you know, something that was really interesting to me in that beginning section was how there was kind of a comment on the internal world of the store 
and then it, it there's echoes of that same you know social division once she goes out into mm. um, the regular world to be a, to be a uh, artificial friend in that opening section. Uh, the, there are certain uh, models of robots that are considered superior to the, to the kind of robot Clara is, the B2, and they separate themselves out and they purposely go off, you know, and, and stand apart from the B2s. The B3s are the more advanced model and, and that sort of uh, division then comes up again and is echoed later in the book with the lifted versus the unlifted. Mm-hmm. And I think that, you know, also connects back to Never Let Me Go, just this idea that that there could be certain people that are in service to others you know of course Clara is a robot so it's a little bit different but um but yeah I think I think that opening sets it up really well both in terms of perception and in terms of what the broader themes are that's fascinating I thought um one of the most interesting and sometimes really confusing elements of this book is that it's narrated by Clara And as I mentioned, she's super perceptive. She's very smart, but she also has such a limited view in so many different ways. Um, I actually listened to this book and I thought the narrative voice was one of its biggest strengths, but it was really fascinating wrestling with the fact that the point of view was also so limited. What did you think of that choice, Anita? You know, I was torn on that because there's an earnestness to mm-hmm. Clara's voice that can, it, it honestly graded on me a little bit <laughs> um, because it was, just, it was just so earnest and, and, but I, that's also Ishiguro's style. I mean, I think a lot of his uh, narrators have that, that kind of, that degree of simplicity. There's not much satire. There's not, it's very plain and transparent language. Yeah. Did it grade on you at all, Veronica? No. Uh, and let me tell you why. <laughs> so I thought about this a lot, actually. So I have, I have awesome. thoughts. Um, but basically, because all of the kind of robot material that I've encountered prior to this book, um, which is a lot because I, I'm basically like a hardcore sci-fi media experiencer. Um, so uh, Veronica Roth, robot nerd. Yeah, <laughs> a little bit. Um, most robot stories are about kind of like people wrestling with to what degree does this being resemble humanity and are like, you know, whether it's kind of being terrified of robots, like in Terminator, um, because they don't resemble humanity in particular ways or like the matrix or, um, or when we kind of like discover the humanity inside of the robot, like in Ex Machina um, or in Blade Runner, those are kind of like the, the different perspectives. But with this book, I felt like I was being forced to repeatedly encounter that this person or this being was not like me. And, Mm. but I was also because of the first person narration being forced to like sympathize and identify with them. So I, I was being pushed into kind of an alien headspace and like, she is extremely earnest. Um, And it's, (laughs) And yes. extremely naive, you know, just because right. she has such a limited experience of the world. So I think the discomfort was kind of exciting to me because it felt like it was adding something new to the robot, I don't know, canon um, <laughs> in, in a way. Yeah, I think you're totally right. We actually we got a couple of really interesting voicemails, particularly about point of view that I want to listen to. Let's start with Annie. Hi, this is Annie from Evanston, Illinois, calling in about Clara and the Sun. 
first, this was the most devastating ending I've read in a really long time. I, I really love this book. Wanted to ask everybody about what you thought about the um, the sun and its healing powers. I completely took this as a naive character making finding patterns where there weren't patterns. Uh, but I've read a review that really felt it was magical realism. And I don't know what it says about me that I completely accepted that there would be a sentient AI with real feelings, but I couldn't accept that the sun would be magical. Uh, but I was wondering what everybody else thought about, did the sun cure her? Was it a coincidence? Yeah, thanks for the book club. So to set that up just a little bit, essentially what happens is that Clara ends up thinking that the sun is sort of like a, you know, a, a benevolent, like all powerful being, partly, I think, you know, because she is solar powered and she ends up asking the sun to heal the child she ends up with, Josie. And I mean, Josie gets better. So it seems like there's like a lot of vagary around whether the sun actually did that or whether she just happened to get better. I, I love what Annie's saying about, you know, why can I picture this AI, but not <laughs> the fact that the sun could be a god. Uh, what did you think, Anita? Like, how did you how did you kind of perceive that? I think I was actually OK with with this kind of magical element because I, I completely bought into the world building in general. And so mm -hmm. I was willing to just accept it on on its own terms, I think. Uh, partly because uh, I think it was Veronica was saying, um, you know, we're all, we're also getting this vision where it's segmented vision. And there are these little things that are not necessarily what I would imagine if I were writing the novel, but, um, but I thought it was okay to collapse the speculative with the magical, with the um, human commentary for me that in fact, that's was pleasurable and, and, you know, nice for me to read that. I didn't, I didn't see it as a, uh, as a flaw in any way, but, but I realized that that's not, you know, the genre mishmash is not for everybody. Mm -hmm. What did you think about that, Veronica? Oh, I, I guess I'm with Annie. I really thought um, that it was just this seeing patterns where patterns don't exist, yes. but, but like Anita, I kind of didn't mind that the book doesn't present me with kind of like an awareness of whether it's real or not. I just mm -hmm. didn't think that was an important question of the book. Like, is it real? Is it not real? It doesn't matter because it's about Clara and her, her perception of the world and her, she, you know, develops this kind of mission for herself and um, that she completes it and like em embraces it seems to be more of the question of the book other mm -hmm. than like, rather than is this real or not? Like, who cares? Is yeah. she real or not? Like, I don't know. She's our official friend. So this is just not an important <laughs> thing for me to consider. I guess. Yeah, absolutely. And also I think, you know, the, the book draws, draws a lot on children's children's literature. So part of the reason I was accepting it was it was reminding mm. me of, you know, Ray Bradbury's story about the summer and the, the little girl that gets, you know, locked in the closet. It's all summer in a day. That's the name of the story. Mm -hmm. Or like the Velveteen Rabbit. Yeah, it's such a beautifully subtle way of doing world building because you, you hear all these conversations that Clara hears, but you don't, like you don't get all this information or backstory or explanation of what they're talking about. You have to learn everything through what she observes and hears. And I just thought it was brilliant. This is one of the things I love about Ishiguro so far is that you, you find things, it's like you're trusted as a reader to yeah. piece things together. It's nothing is kind of like slapping you in the face, mm -hmm. which I, I really like. 
I think I wouldn't mind something a little more in the middle of those two. Like, I don't want to be slapped in the face with it, but I wouldn't have, like, I did feel like there was a lot to puzzle through. And I had a lot mm-hmm. of questions by the end of, th- of you know, like seeds that felt to me like they were planted, but then we didn't get to see them actually grow. Um, let's listen to another voicemail. Here is Asako. Hi, no dad. My name's Asako. I'm calling from Sydney, Australia, and I just finished reading Clara and the Sun. I absolutely loved the writing style of this. Um, There was a real sense of ambiguous, foreshadowing, doom. And you never really knew what was going on because everything was through the lens of Clara. And she had these very textbook definitions of everything. It was so dense with this mood, but there was still a lot of details missing. Oh, I just love the way she said doom. It felt right, you know? (laughs) Um, So we kind of already said this, but just to clarify. So there's a young teenage girl. She's named Josie. And she ends up, she comes to the store once. She says she wants Clara and that she'll come back. And then she does, in fact, come back. And we know from the beginning that, like, something is difficult with Josie. Like, her mom is, I forget the exact phrasing they use, but she's obviously, she's, like, exhausted, I think, maybe, is one of the, she's had a hard time. Um, and so Clara moves into the house with Josie and her mother and there's a housekeeper named Melania housekeeper early. So that's what Clara calls her. Um, we find out Josie is sick. Josie had a sister who died. Uh, Josie's parents are split up and we don't meet her dad until later on in the book, though we do meet him. And then we also meet Rick, who's Josie's next door neighbor and very dear friend. Um, And I don't know, I think you kind of mentioned this, Veronica, but I think there's a little more to unpack with it. Um, Partly because of the point of view, there are some mysteries in the book. And I think this is kind of what I'm talking about with the seeds being planted, too. One is what happened to Josie's older sister, Sal. Another is what made Josie sick in the first place. It's pretty heavily implied in both cases that it was because of lifting, which you mentioned earlier, Anita, which it sounds like essentially is, is gene editing that's done on children to make them smarter. Um, I was a little frustrated that that wasn't, I mean, again, I didn't need to be slapped in the face with it, but I could have used a little more clarity, I think, with some of those mysteries. Anita, did you find them compelling? Like, were you satisfied with how that played out? Yeah. Um, you know, I was satisfied with how it played out, but I too could have used a little more handholding. I was okay with that level of mystery because it generated a lot of suspense for me. I wanted to try and figure it out. Uh, you know, it was, it, it was intriguing, but at the same time, yeah, I definitely felt, oh, uh, this is so much world building that I'm, I have to work really hard to stay in this world, I guess. Well, and the fact that we didn't, I think if we had gotten definitive answers too, even if our hands hadn't been held, but it, we had at least gotten like a satisfying conclusion to some of those mysteries, I would have felt more satisfied by it. But as it, like, I felt sort of like it all just was sort of, I felt like there was a languishing element to like those storylines in particular that, you know, I was kind of disappointed to not really get a definitive solution. I'm curious, you know, Veronica, you talked earlier, at least in terms of like whether or not the sun actually cured Josie. It seems like you maybe are more, uh, more comfortable in that ambiguity. Yeah, I think I, (laughs) I think it's totally reasonable to want more answers. So I totally hear you guys. Um, (laughs) But I just was not, I think those weren't the questions I was interested in. And so it didn't bother me so much. Mm, Um, But what Asaka said about the doom, I wrote, (laughs) 
<laughs> in my notes about this, I was like, doom! Um, <laughs> impending doom feelings of Ishiguro. This was my note. I just feel like this is a thing that I've seen him do with these two books that I have read, which is, um, like, very, even early in, in the book when Clara doesn't see the AFs outside the window, she expects mm. to see them walking around, like, living mm-hmm. their free lives or with their children, and she doesn't see them. And I was like, mm-hmm. oh, God, something bad is going to happen at the end of this book. And um, just the the little, the, the mysteries around the mother, I think, were the, were the questions I wanted answered, and they were answered. So for me, mm-hmm. that was kind of the mystery that was tugging me through the book, and that's I got an answer. Point. So yeah. I, I think that's what kept me from getting frustrated. That makes sense. All right. More on Clara and the Sun in just a minute. Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max. And listen to the Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. So we've talked about world building. I kind of want to dive into that a little more. I think it's I think it's connected to the point of view, but obviously I think it also has to do with, you know, what we've talked about in terms of Ishiguro trusting his readers. Um, but this book is set in, it's sort of like near-ish, future-ish America. And there are so many euphemisms in this book for, for what has happened. One example is that workers have been quote-unquote substituted by AI. There are these factions of fascists. The more money you have, the more likely you're able to afford to lift your child or, you know, give them the genetic treatments. Um, Kids are super isolated. They don't go to school. They study on their oblongs when they do hang out with each other. Oh, my gosh. Was it called interactions? I think it's called interactions. Interaction meetings. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, wow, way to suck all the fun out of that. Um, I don't know. I thought it was really interesting, partly because, you know, over the past year and a half, I think some aspects of those storylines are more resonant than others. I think especially, you know, like kids learning on screens is, you know, just because of the pandemic, much more common than it would have been. Um, But I was curious how familiar y'all found this world to be. Like, I don't know. How close do you think we are to some of the things that Ishiguro is portraying here? Anita, what do you think? I think we're actually really close to this world. And that was also what made it uh, sort of a terrifying novel in certain respects. It was both very moving and terrifying because it actually did feel to me uh, living here in Silicon Valley. It felt mm. to me like a very uh, plausible, plausible world. And in, in all ways, including, you know, the, the sense of uh, creeping fascism, the emphasis on technology, the way wealth can, you know, uh, lift you in in Mm. some sense and give you like significantly more advantages uh the substitution of um artificial means of comfort over you know sort of the more organic you know human to human connection Mm -hmm. so i i found it in terms of world building very real 
I agree. Yeah, I, I think with um, kind of dystopian-esque novels, I don't want to call this dystopian exactly. Cause, right, I right. Um, I think that's why I said near-ish future. Yeah, near-ish sort of like... future. <laughs> but usually they'll, they'll take kind of like one or two things and kind of advance them and watch those play out experimentally. Mm. This more took a bunch of stuff that we have going on. We've got CRISPR for our gene editing. Mm-hmm. We've got, you know, workplaces being kind of replaced by automated processes. We've got um, the oblongs, people learning on these screens. Like we have all these things, but this just kind of amplified them just a little. Um, So it felt really, it made the world feel really well-rounded and also, you know, lived in. And especially what resonated with me was the disparity thing between having kids learning at home and then some of them like can't afford to um, Mm -hmm. have these kind of tutors and stuff like that. Because um, I just saw so much of that during the pandemic, like kids who, you know, in some households, every kid has a room they can occupy during the day and every kid has a computer or whatever. But we had some, you know, we had some friends who are living in more cramped living spaces with only one tablet, maybe. And so it's like, which kid gets to learn which hour? There's like multiple kids in a household. So, you know, good luck, basically. Um, And so that kind of, I mean, it was a real punch in the gut. This book was like, geez. Uh, So that part really resonated with me particularly. Yeah. Well, and in the book, we really see that through Rick and kind of the differences in those two. Because Rick isn't lifted and Josie is. And they're really close friends and they want to, you know, they have this plan essentially to kind of spend the rest of their lives together. But, you know, they're really worried about him being able to go to a good school. And his mom has to, like, ask an old friend to help him get into a fancy school. And that's pretty creepy and weird, too. It was a very... I don't know. It was interesting to sort of see how class played out, I thought, in those dynamics. What did you think of that section, Anita? Yeah, I mean, I think I think the critique of class is really smart through the whole book. And that, you know, at first I wasn't sure how I felt about there being this extra subplot. Mm-hmm. But the more that I, you know, went over mm-hmm. different sections of the book, the more I realized that that it actually did grow out organically from the other themes. Like even from those first 45 pages, we know that there's going to be, you know, uh, class divisions and, um, you know, which robots get bought, which ones don't. There's, there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of consideration of, of class that builds into the situation with Rick and uh, his, his mother's kind of desire to allow him to have, you know, more advantages and the sense in which he's, you know, treat mistreated by the, the lift lifted children and sort of has mm-hmm. a chip on his shoulder. All of it is very real, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I, I thought it worked ultimately. I was just thinking about that scene where, so Rick goes to the interaction meeting with Josie, mm-hmm. she asks him to, and they keep asking him if he likes action movies. <laughs> I think they're, I think it's like the, this the implication is that he's stupid and that, that, like, that of course he'll be pleased by like explosions and car chases and stuff. Mm-hmm. And it was just so like the, the kind of elegant cruelty of children was like really on display mm-hmm. in that scene. That scene made me sweat. Um, Cause it's not only like Rick getting <laughs> nagged by these other kids it's it's uh they were like threatening to throw clara to see how well she copes with it and like it's fine she won't hurt and they're like preparing to toss her in the air and i man i think robot stories are a lot like i was mentioning earlier about you know how human is the robot but i feel like with clara it was like how is humanity something desirable 
because mm. they were so much more cruel and callous than she was. She's so gentle and caring. Um, she's like, maybe like humanity is not aspirational in this book. And mm. that was interesting. Yeah, that is a really good point. So speaking of, we'll call it robot canon. Um, one thing that I did think was really interesting about this book that I don't know, I feel like I haven't seen a whole lot of, but I'm curious what your take is, Veronica, is the fact that, you know, I feel like so much of pop culture treatment of robots is a lot of it has to do with the fact that humans are pretty terrified of robots and like what robots might be able to do. And if we make robots in our image, are they just going to destroy us? You know, but in this book, she is so benign. Veronica, is that is that a unique treatment or are there a lot of benevolent robot things out there and I just haven't come across them really? There's a lot of like, like robots showing us how terrible humans are is like a part of sure that's very true kind of Westworld and then even sometimes in Battlestar Galactica sort of like that Mm -hmm. so there's that but um but even in those cases like the robots are not benign they're capable they're they're killing machines yeah Yeah. they're capable and they and usually like the plot is about robot rebellion like rising up against horrible Right. right kind of masters um and so robot stories, I feel like, are always about kind of like a work, a workforce, like, a, you know. Or even creation against creator, I often think about, too. Yeah. You know, like a theology almost to it. Definitely. But this was like, I don't know. I was like, would this robot pass the Turing test? Like, I don't, like, mm. yes, no, and no, she wouldn't because she's always distinctly different. She's not, like, she can't pass as human, and that's not the goal. Um so I don't know. Yeah, I think this was kind of unique in my experience. I have not, you know, experienced all of the robot, the robot oh, media sure, that sure, exists. Sure. That's but, fair. <laughs> um, but no, I do think this is a very uncommon way of presenting um, a story about a, an artificial intelligence for sure. Well, and it sounds like, you know, from what both of you have said, but especially you, Anita, I think that that the idea of servitude is something that comes up in a lot of Ishiguro's work. And to that end, it's it's probably not particularly surprising that that's kind of the treatment Clara gets in this story. Yeah. I, th- I mean, I think, yeah, when you're comparing Ishiguro to himself, it's it's very common. But when you're comparing it to other robot narratives, I completely agree. It's usually robots do have, you know, um, they, they're not usually the empathetic ones in the, in the situation. So something we haven't talked about that I think is a of huge and very important component of this book is, I don't know, is kind of what it's saying about grief. Um, it comes up a lot throughout the book. There's actually a, a moment when I'm pretty sure it's Claire's mother's or Josie's mother is speaking to Clara and she says something like, it must be nice not to miss things. And I think there is, and you know, you know, I mean, Josie's sister has died grief and, and even like, gosh, like preemptive grief is something, and I think it kind of speaks to the doom aspect of this book too, is something that you really, it's a thread that's pretty, you know, profound throughout the book. Um, And we haven't gotten to the whole Dr. Capaldi thing, which was such an interesting uh, aspect of the story. Essentially, Clara finds out that if Josie dies, Clara is going to take Josie's place. Which I think in a lot of ways is probably the most resonant element of the story. But I'm curious how that worked for each of you. Veronica, what did you think? Well, first of all, can I read that quote? Because I wrote down yes, that quote yes, that you were yes. mentioning. Oh, okay. good. I'm glad. Um, 
the mother says, it must be nice sometimes to have no feelings. I envy you. And Ugh. Clara says, I considered this, then said, I believe I have many feelings. The more I observe, the more feelings become available to me. Ah! Oh, my God. Ooh. I loved it so much. Yeah. Um, <laughs> sorry. What you no. were asking <laughs> was um, how this worked. Okay, so this was, like, the, the main thing of the book for me. Yes. The mother. The mother's. The mystery around the mother. Yeah. Yes. Her unwillingness to experience grief a second time. Um, mm-hmm. We kind of, I think, think that, like, inevitably suffering will lead to resilience. So, she already lost one of her daughters that maybe she'll be able to do that again. But I think mm. that's not necessarily true um, of, of humanity. Like sometimes suffering leads us to like never want to do that again. Yeah. Um, and I think that was such a relatable part of the mother, but it was also such a, the horror of this book is that yeah. she's like priming this robot to replace her child. So she doesn't have to feel um, her absence. And Oh gosh, it just mm-hmm. like tears. It, ties me in knots (laughs) yeah yeah that's one to be very conflicted about what did you think Anita no I completely agree with Veronica I think oh my gosh it's a devastating book and and I think it uh, is another commentary you know on on humans and where we're going with artificial intelligence in terms of trying to ever avoid pain you know trying to avoid pain or ever feeling uh loss and all throughout the I think the sense of loss um permeates permeates this entire book um, where, where it's, there's a world disappearing beneath, you know, right in front of their eyes. And I think it kind of uh, speaks to our moment where a world that we knew is is sort of drastically shifting. And yet it makes it this kind of timeless um, meditation in terms of that's, that's always the case. And that's why I was comparing it to remains of the day too. Mm -hmm. And I think with never let me go there, there's constantly a sense of, um, pervasive lost and that twist with the mother uh for me was very powerful it was just a powerful way to um to expose that tension in in ordinary life and then dramatize it and give it you know a much more disturbing and creepy quality as a way of kind of commenting on it as a low-grade tension you know in most people's lives now uh let's listen to another voicemail here is ava Hi, Nerdette. This is Ava. I am calling about this month's book club pick. In general, I felt like this book had high hopes. I loved the first half. I thought there was a lot of good setup, good character building, and I was really interested in where it was going to go. Then it started to kind of fall flat for me. I felt like there were a lot of sci-fi tropes and I was looking for a big twist. I read to the very end thinking that something was going to turn what I expected to happen on its head and that never really happened. Didn't hate it, didn't love it. I just was a little disappointed that nothing surprised me as I went through the book. As always, looking forward to the podcast. I can relate very strongly to what Ava's saying. I thought like I loved the setup. I was a little disappointed with how everything kind of panned out. Were either of you disappointed either? It seems like, Veronica, you were mostly okay with the things that didn't pan out because you enjoyed it enough anyway, yeah? Well, I do think there's kind of a lack of, like, a climactic Mm, or, mm -hmm. you know, like, a lack of impact, I guess. Sure. I definitely relate to that. I was kind of happy to take the book at face value um, or take it for what it is and what it was intended to be instead of trying to... Uh, kind of like impose any expectations on it but 
of course I have those expectations because those are the expectations of every reader. Right. 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 Um, and then especially after, uh, again, we'll not spoil it, but after Never Let Me Go, which does have kind of a, <laughs> like a punch, like a really, like I can still remember which scene I believe is the climactic one. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I think the struggle with this book is that the climax is like internal for Clara because she has a goal and a mission and she accomplishes that goal. And so for her, it's kind of a triumph, but because her goals are not relatable to us, um, because we're not actually in her headspace and we can kind of see around her, um, I think that kind of compromises some of the impact a little bit. Mm, That's a good point. Let's listen to Rachel. She had similar viewpoints. Hi, Nerdette. This is Rachel from Indianapolis. I was so excited when this book got picked because I loved Ishiguro's Never Let Me Go. I have to say that the first half of the book just had me. I was totally enthralled and just captured and just couldn't put it down. But then once Clara started going after the sun, it kind of fell apart for me. And I don't know why, because I still really liked the whole book, but I think that it all just kind of fell flat. I don't know. I'm curious if anybody else felt that way. What did you think, Anita? Did you feel like it fell flat or did it work for you throughout mostly? I, honestly, it worked for me throughout. I, I, it didn't fall flat for me. I don't, and I don't know why. I, I, I hear all the, I hear the comments. I mean, I mm-hmm. think, I think that's totally, totally valid. But for me, I was completely absorbed into this world. I thought, you know, the dramatization of these different social issues was very, it felt very organic. And you know, even at the end with the mission related to the sun, I thought it was set up pretty well by the fact that she was, you know, by those opening pages where we see that, That's true. you know, she's always looking out for the sun. And, and I think that that it, it gave throughout the sun had a kind of enchanted quality for Clara. It's an interesting uh, way of confabulating, you know, the power of the sun. I think as your girl kind of selects against drama in this book, like the choice, you can see the choices he doesn't hmm. make. A lot of the time, like um, at the end when Dr. Capaldi is like, we can make something more of you and more of your life and we can prove to people that they shouldn't be afraid of AFs or, you know, whatever that whole sequence is. And then the mother insists that Clara deserves a better, like she deserves a hearse slow fade, I think is what the term is in the book, Mm -hmm. Um, deserves to kind of end her life the way that she's supposed to. And that was so interesting to me because I was like, okay, well, I know that this isn't going to happen because there's not that many pages left in this book, but, um, but that could have been like a whole alternate adventure, a whole way of kind of making the world of the story and the world of Clara feel bigger. And he Mm -hmm. was like, no, shut that, shut down that Avenue. And that's not a criticism. I think that's a really interesting choice. Um, and, and obviously very deliberate. So I kind of appreciated that at least I was reading something very intentional and I needed to kind of let go of what, you know, the part of me that loves like robots and explosions would like, right, <laughs> and, right. and just <laughs> kind of see what was there and experience what was trying to be communicated by this yeah. story. That's a lovely way of putting it. And it's a great introduction to our final voicemail. Let's take a listen to Liz. Hey, this is Liz from Roseville, Minnesota. I'm calling about Clara and the sun. Uh, this is like my fourth take of this because every single time <laughs> I start a voicemail, I start thinking about a different aspect that I want to talk about about this book. I think what I'm really just going to then talk about or say is that whole idea. um, It starts off when Mr. Capaldi is talking about whether or not Clara can continue Josie, right? Like, 
that we all want to believe that there's something unreachable inside each of us, something that's unique and won't transfer, but there's nothing like that. We know that now for people our age, it's a hard one to let go. Nothing inside Josie that's beyond the Claire's of this world to continue. The second Josie won't be a copy, right? So like Clara could seamlessly take in Josie. And then at the end, like the very, very end, when Clara is talking to the manager and she was like, you know, he was right, but he wasn't. Like he was really wrong because he was searching in the wrong place. Like the parts that make us special aren't just us. It's the way we touch others. I just thought that was a really gorgeous sentiment you know well i hadn't thought about that now i'm just like oh, i need to sit with this for a while <laughs> i love that we're all a little bit mind blown by different elements i feel like that's what you know like that's a sign of a really great conversation about a really great book i think you know so i have two more questions for you both uh the first one is whether there's another book or author that someone should check out if they really liked this one. I am totally open to whether that's because of tone or subject matter or point of view, really anything, as long as it kind of has a similar flavor in some way. Anita, do you have a recommendation? Oh, you know, that's a just a hard question because I think Ishiguro is so much himself, you know, like in every mm-hmm. book, there's something um, sort of unable to be duplicated in his, in his writing. Um, I, I really think, you know, all summer in a day is what, is what the book reminded me of. I think Ray Bradbury mm-hmm. is, is the author that is most in conversation with, with this particular Ishiguro. Um, the, there's just the same sort of, you know, uh, nostalgia and melancholy related to childhood. There's you know, magical elements. There's a quality of creepiness, you know, the, combination of speculative and magic realism I was really struggling before this podcast to think if I could think of any and I and I don't nothing has come to mind other than Bradbury that's a great recommendation uh what do you think Veronica well I am going to cheat and give two because I think it depends (laughs) on depends on what you liked about it so if you enjoyed occupying a robot headspace um, then you should read the Murderbot Diaries yes, by Martha Wells. Yep. Yeah. Good. Um, they're a little more funny, maybe a little, like, definitely more hard sci-fi than than this, but gosh, it's so much fun. Um, those books are great. And they Yeah, they have Rick a would good... like them. <laughs> yeah, Rick would like them. Huh. Um, and they have a kind of, like, undercurrent of emotion, they emotional, do. like, in-touchedness um, that I think is good. But if, if what you liked is is the tone and kind of the beautiful but but sort of sparse writing of it then and still in the sort of sci-fi realm you might like Blue Ticket by Sophie McIntosh which is a wonderful book that I read last year and um gosh just like the mood of it felt very similar to this book to me wow I haven't heard of that one so that's exciting I'll check it out um, let's see. I had thought of one. And what was it? Oh, it's actually a short story that was recently recommended to me by Eve Ewing, who is an awesome Chicago person. She just wrote a middle grade novel called Maya and the Robot, which is very different in tone from this one. But it's about a good robot, at least. But when I was interviewing her and asking her about what it's like to sort of embody the personality of a fifth grader but in a sophisticated way you know while still giving fifth graders credit for everything they're going through she talked about reading a short story by Sandra Cisneros called 11 has either of you read this one Mm -mm. 
oh, it's gorgeous. It opens with this line where she says the thing about turning 11 is that you're also still 10 and 9 and 8 and 7 and mm-hmm. 6. And they're throughout the whole, and it's very short. It's maybe three pages, but there's just a, yeah, I think nostalgia, there's a wistfulness. And to see that even from the point of view of an 11 year old is kind of heartbreaking, but it's also just really gorgeous. I find myself thinking about it a lot. Before I let you go, we always have a totally arbitrary rating system for each book. This time I figured we could do hours of sunlight. Let's call it a full 24 hours. So from zero to 24 hours, how many hours of sunlight do you give this book, Anita? Yeah, I think I would give it maybe uh, 22 hours of sunlight or 23 hours of sunlight, probably. That's solid. That's a good Alaska summer right there. <laughs> what do you think, Veronica? Oh, man, I'm so bad at this kind of, <laughs> this kind I know. of thing. It's, you should hear me at the yeah. doctor giving the pain scale, just always <laughs> arguing with them about well. it. <laughs> um yeah, I mean, I would rate it very highly at maybe... It's hard because I'm kind of grading Ishiguro against himself, <laughs> which mm. is because this is one of the best books I've read this year, but it, it maybe wasn't like as good as Never Let Me Go, but that's kind of ridiculous um, mm-hmm. <laughs> because that book was just <laughs> so amazing to me. So yeah, I'd probably be like 21 hours of sunlight, something like, like that. solid. That's great. I think I'm going to do 20, which... And I think it might have been a little lower, but I do think just talking to y'all made me appreciate the bits about it that kind of bummed me out. I think to your point, Veronica, like I love drama. I love a really good soapy book. And this definitely wasn't that right. And there's still a lot of really interesting pieces in it. I'm very glad I read it and I'm very glad to have gotten to discuss it with you because I think that did shine some light on it, if you will. Well, Anita, Veronica, thank you both so much for talking about this book with me. It really was just a treat. Thank you so much for having me. And it was great to talk to to both of you. Um, it's wonderful. I, I really enjoyed it. Yeah, thanks for having me. I really feel like I love this book even more after talking about it. So, <laughs> Right? I love that. that's it for book club this month if you would like to keep the conversation going a great place to do that is actually on our facebook group it is more than 600 nerds strong and a very high percentage of them are big readers just saying you can sign up over at facebook.com slash groups slash nerd at hq our September book club pick is Crying in H Mart by Michelle Zauner. I have heard excellent things about it. Her name also might ring a bell because she's the lead singer for the indie rock band Japanese Breakfast. The book is a memoir. It's about grief and food and family connections. I have heard it is outstanding. I'm going to be talking about it with Carrie and Alexis, who host the great podcast called Lit Society. So read the book, send us your thoughts, and then tune in for that discussion coming up on the last Tuesday of the month. The show is produced by me and Hannah Edgar. Our executive producer is Brendan Banazak. See you soon. Read a book. Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Tan Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Macs and listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts.